Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Our sponsor this week is Erdman's Publishing, which has just released a new book from Russell Rathbun titled The Great Wall of China and the Salton Sea. What can Madame Mao's Gang of Four, The Great Flood, The Tower of Babel, and other monumental missteps teach us about human ambition and the mind of God? Find out in Rathbun's wise and cheeky postmodern midrash, The Great Wall of China and the Salton Sea, available wherever books are sold, including Erdman's.com. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio is a little different. It features a short onstage conversation between Tobias Wolf and his former student, George Saunders, and it took place after Saunders' keynote at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. As a professor of creative writing, Tobias was a major influence on George when the younger writer did his MFA at Syracuse. George now teaches at Syracuse himself, while Tobias recently retired after finishing his teaching career at Stanford. George has called Tobias an American master, one of our very best short story writers. And Tobias has called George one of the luminous spots in our literature for the last 20 years. Needless to say, we were delighted and honored to host their first public dialogue about their work. Moderated by Serena Gruber-Moore, the conversation covered how writers situate themselves within a creative lineage, the dangers of abstractions, and the ways Catholicism and Buddhism influence their writing. To introduce the conversation, I caught up with George just as he was getting ready to go out on the road to promote his first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. And we talked about Tobias and their time together at the festival. Hello. Hi, George. It's Lisa. Hey, Lisa. How are you doing? Good to hear from you. Where did we catch you in a sort of mental state? Where are you today? Pretty good. I'm getting packed, literally getting packed. I've got all my stuff out and leaving in about, let's see, what am I leaving? Well, we go to San Francisco on... uh, Sunday, and then I'm right from there. I go to Philadelphia, and it's like you know, 20 straight cities or something. So it's kind of a new, a new level of touring. So that'll be kind of fun. That's super fun. I'm hoping to catch you uh, in Chicago at the Music Box. Oh, good, um, good. Yeah, March. that should be a good one. Yeah, that should be a fun one. Well, and Lincoln and the Bardo is such a kind of wonderfully strange story. Can you describe kind of the basic conceit and and kind of say kind of how you started to come up with it? So basically, um, it, I the book came out of this thing that I heard about 20 years ago. Uh, we we're in DC, DC with my wife and our daughters and my wife's cousin, and she pointed out that uh, the place where Willie Lincoln had been buried. And I, at that point, I didn't even know who that was, but it, you know, she told me it was Lincoln's son, and that Lincoln had been so grief-stricken that he actually went into the crypt at one point and had some kind of interaction with the his son's body. And that just stuck in my mind all those years. So the story just kind of takes, um, it's basically all set on one night and it's the night on which Lincoln goes to the uh, crypt. And that's kind of it. That's really all that happens. He goes to the crypt and then he leaves. <laughs> so it's, it's a, and yet so much more it's happens. A five, it's a five page <laughs> novel. Very understated. Right. <laughs> novel, quote unquote, yeah. in a Saunders way. Right. Yeah. So that was, I mean, that was it. And really the, you know, then as you, you hope happens and with a work of art that you're undertaking, the, um, this, the simple premise got complicated and you, as you start to figure out, well, what's the best angle through this stuff and, uh, how can I, how can I represent this in a way that seems new? And, uh, but the whole, for me, the whole trek was a little bit unusual in that I, usually I just start a short story and I don't know what it is and I don't care. I just go, I have no, um, 
endpoint. And this one, I had a little bit of a, like a pole star, whatever you call it, where I just, whenever I would get a little confused, I think this is a story about, you know, love, a father's love for his son. That That's it. And it's that moment that I heard of at the beginning. So that was kind of interesting to kind of be steering towards that a little bit. And my hope was to make any, any innovations or weirdness in it somehow be subjugated to that goal of that emotional goal. So I didn't want to particularly you know, be fancy or, or actually even be funny, uh, for the sake of it. I just wanted everything to serve that purpose. So that was kind of a cool, um, you know, almost like a mantra that you could keep in mind that when you went in doubt, <clears throat> I, I kept a picture of Willie and Abe Lincoln over my desk. And I would just kind of look up at those two and go, okay, I'm, I'm remembering that you're real people. I'm, tr- I'm not trying to make a literary punchline out of you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? That comment you said about not even trying to be funny intentionally here reminds me of something you said at the festival, um, and it was it was kind of almost a little a bit of a side. And I've listened to this interview you did with Lou Clad a couple times, and you talked about how you at one point had kind of aspired to be more like Hemingway or something with this kind of stoic reserve uh, on the page. And you kind of came to a point where you realized, you know, whatever animates your work on the page is going to be part of what, you know, animates you in real life. Um, And for you, kind of that's kind of funny guy who cracks people up, you know, in real life, that 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 was going to need to come out on the page in some meaningful way. Um, And you said this thing, you said... um, See if I can get the quote right. It's it's easier said than done to accept who we really are and make art out of that. Yes. Um, and I wondered, uh, and and this will kind of turn us to talking a little bit about Tobias Wolf and kind of your writerly education. But um, when did you kind of get to that place where you started to kind of accept who you really are and make art out of that? Well, the first part, never yet. Actually, I'm still in <laughs> denial about it. But it was actually there was a really specific time in my life. I was uh, we had our, our daughters; they were babies, and. I was working as a tech writer up in Rochester and I had been writing these kind of Hemingway-esque stories or I had this one novel that was kind of a, I don't know what it was, like James Joyce goes to Mexico or something, and but always keeping the humor out of it. And then um, I kind of got a little panicked. I was in my early 30s and nothing was happening and I could kind of see that if I, you know, I, that it was going to take extraordinary measures to change my life and, and make it more centered on art and um, not just be a tech writer. And uh so there was just a kind of a catastrophic thing where I, a series of things, I'd written a big novel that I gave my wife to read and she just, you know, she was absolutely right. It was just, a, it wasn't good. It was sort of ponderous, you know, and that hurt. And then, um, I mean, I went into work not long after that, just kind of in that almost elated stage of despair, like, okay, you know, what the heck's going on? And I was just offhandedly making these little cartoons, you know, and, and kind of, uh, writing poems, like I'm like dog roll type poems. Just I was just killing time while I was on a conference call. And I brought those home and she really had a positive reaction. She laughed, you know, and I mean, uh, and so that that kind of threw a little a little door open in my mind. That, and at the same time, my best friend had read some my some stuff. And um, there was there was a story I'd written about seven years before that was a little bit like my first book would turn out to be funny, a little funny. And he said to me in a moment of candor that you can only get from a best friend, he said, this is better than anything you've done in the last five years. So the door went up a little wider. And um, so somehow all those constructions I'd made in my mind about seriousness, and, you know, being a solemn writer just got flushed. And um, it was such a relief. It was really like if you've been, you know, talking in a false voice your whole life and suddenly some, someone gave you permission to just sound the way you sound. So that was literally within a week. And I then I wrote the first um, 
the first story of what would become my first book and it was a totally different mode you know funny and loose and smart Alex and all that and so 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 that was a, I think it was just saying well look I use this set of uh charms in real life why am I not using them in my writing life at all in fact why am I suppressing them and one of the symptoms of making that jump for me was this really wonderful sense of always knowing what to do you know when I was faking it I would always be I don't know I don't know I have no idea my taste was gone and so the decision making was done mm, rationally, you know, or you'd think, well, what did Hemingway do in this situation or, you know, you know WWHD. And uh, so <laughs> so then suddenly in this new mode, I, I always knew what I wanted to do. I always knew what would be fun and what would be energetic. So that's just a great relief, you know, to get in, into that mode. Yeah, that's wonderful. I wonder if we could think back even a little bit farther to um, you, you talk about in that New Yorker piece that you did about. Um, studying with with Tobias and at Syracuse in general um, mm -hmm. about getting that call from him, at, you know, at your parents' yeah. house in Amarillo, and and I wondered, like back before that, what was it about Tobias's work that made you want to study with him and at Syracuse? You know, honestly, I don't think I uh, I think when I applied, I knew a little. Of, I hadn't read him. Mm -hmm. I, I actually okay. hadn't read Car. I hadn't read Carver either. I just had heard about them. Yeah. And from a People magazine article. So I applied, you know, <laughs> That's and then funny. after, after I applied, I read some more and I don't remember, you know, it's a long time ago, but I remember getting that call and, uh, I, th I, I think I, I, I remember I also been accepted to Houston where Donald Bartholomew was teaching and I had an, a, a decision to make. And, you know, Toby called and he was so charming as he always is. And that was a big persuader. And then I just went and read the work. So I went and found the collection in the Garden of the North American Martyrs. And there was one story in there called Wingfield that just blew my mind. And I felt so um, just in, in the uh, company of a loving human being. And it spoke to me at that time so strongly, you know. Toby, I heard him one time say, um, he said, he said, somebody was talking about this idea of experimental versus realist. And he just kind of said, well, every great story is experimental. In that story, you can see just what he means. You know, it's experimental because it has to be to evoke the possible deepest emotion. Yeah. Well, it was so wonderful to, to get to have you both on stage together at the festival. That was such a surprise to realize, I think, at dinner before um, that evening that you guys we had been had. on stage. Well, the only time we had before, before was he was when, yeah. when I was a student, he was a, he was reading and I set up the P.A., so I don't know if that counts, you know, but <laughs> no, for me, yeah, you for know, me, it was of. wonderful just to sit there and listen to him because he is an incredibly wise person and uh, I just, I just love him. And so, you know, to, to have um, an artistic mentor in your life who is so important is I, I think it's rare and, and I think it's an incredible blessing because even now, you know, we, we were friends and um, every time I'm with him, I'm, I learn something and I am inspired and and actually it's the best kind of learning because what I do is I watch the way he relates to the world and I adjust my posture accordingly you know if if I um if I'm not sure how I should think or about something or speak about it I'm I just look to him and he's you know he's an incredible role model for anybody and and you know on top of all that he's an American master that that's the other thing we you know I always talk about how what a wonderful guy he is but then you think wait a minute this is one of the greatest short story writers of all time right 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 well um thanks so much for your time all right well thank you guys very much safe travels thanks guys bye-bye and now George Saunders and Tobias Wolf in conversation at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing 
One thing we want to talk about tonight is the relationship between um, teaching and writing and that kind of teacher-student relationship. Um, and I heard that, uh, George, this is the first time you've shared a stage with Tobias. It's true, yeah. Uh, except for when you set up the microphone stand. Yeah. yeah. There was a famous, uh, we were talking about it before, uh, Toby read Chekhov's wonderful trilogy about love to us as, when we were students, and it was one of the big moments in our, our you know, our time at Syracuse, and I, when we got there, the guy didn't know how to set the mic up, and I had been playing in a band, so that was my big coup for that year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that's a nice segue to my questions about Chekhov, actually. You've both mentioned Chekhov in the festival, and um, one of my colleagues sent me this letter that Chekhov uh, wrote his brother in 1886, in which he sort of spells out his manifesto for short fiction. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Yeah, um, it's a list of six elements. And I thought, well, let's just read these. And uh, I'd love to hear you both riff on, on those elements and um, you know where you take that. So the first is absence of lengthy verbiage of a political, social, economic nature. Disagree. Uh, <laughs> um, two, total objectivity. Three, truthful descriptions of persons and objects. Four, extreme brevity. Five, audacity and originality. Uh, slash, flee, free, or flee the stereotype. And six is compassion. What was the last piece? Compassion. Yeah, I'd have to agree with those. <laughs> no, you know, it's interesting because I, I was thinking, as you mentioned Chekhov, that everything I know about Chekhov came directly from Toby. I'd never heard of him before. Or maybe I'd, I think I'd read maybe Lady with Pet Dog and Amarillo and thought, oh, I don't get it. It's, you know, there's no, it's boring. And then to hear Toby read Chekhov that night and then also to absorb some of the, the stuff in workshop was, you know, I think that's one way that, that lineage works is, you, is your love mm. Uh, manifested sincerely gets picked up by your students and even your you know my way of thinking about writing comes comes directly from Toby without even uh, he was the first writer I ever met really you know so I think that's where these these lessons come down beautifully in action and and I know I convey the same you know directly to my students I, I, what else could I give them but what Toby gave me you know so yeah in the kind of lineage of uh, passing on tradition yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I want to say, too, that uh, at, when George uh, came into my workshop at Syracuse, he'd already had quite an interesting life. He'd, uh, uh, most of the uh, graduate students I was working with who were very gifted writers had taken a, a more conventional path to that workshop than George. They had, they had been English majors in school and, and uh, worked on the school literary journal and and uh, often came in pretty quickly from school to the graduate program. And George had, uh, George had gone to the Colorado School of Mines. He'd studied engineering. He'd been a petroleum engineer in Sumatra, uh, managed a motel in Amarillo uh, just before he came to Syracuse. Uh, he had a, a, and he was also a musician. He plays, he's a, plays a wonderful guitar. I wish you had it with you. Um, we could sing helplessly helping, hoping, uh, but, which we have done. We have heard the chimes at midnight. Uh, but uh, uh, so, you know, when you have people like this in your workshop and, and others would come in, uh, 
you didn't feel so much as you were teaching as having a sustained conversation, really, and benefiting uh, greatly from their experience, their way of reading. And so it's more collaborative. It, it, uh, it wasn't a kind of top-down thing. It doesn't work that way. Uh, but to get back to these precepts of Chekhov, they all sounded kind of good to me as you were reading them, and then each time I thought, nah, uh, I can think an exception to that. Um, and uh, for example, objectivity. Actually, some of the texts, some of the novels and stories that I most value are written, f are, are rants even, you know? That novel of uh, Frederick Exley's, A Fan's Notes. I mean, <laughs> you're hard put sometimes even to like the narrator. And he himself is lashing out at the world in all kinds of different ways. And yet he's absolutely there in his humanity. Uh, he doesn't always have compassion for others, but in some strange way, he compels compassion in you for him. And so there's all kinds of different ways. It's interesting, Chekhov, as, I was, as you were reading that and came to this passage about being objective, uh, Chekhov almost never writes from the first person. And it's a lot, it's, it's my, actually, when you are writing from the first person, you are, uh, you are denied objectivity. You are, in fact, by the very conditions of taking that point of view, uh, forced to be biased and partial and half-blind and blundering and all those sorts of things. Uh, I mean, think of our favorite narrators in fiction, you know? Uh, Nick Carraway, who can seduce us with his language, but the closer we look at that novel, we see this someone who's really fooling himself deeply. And uh, when he says, I'm the most honest man I know, you think, well, you're keeping bad company then because you are <laughs> an extremely, there are dishonesties in you that you are hiding from yourself. And um, Holden Caulfield, I mean, I could go on forever. So when, when you know, it, it really depends on the kind of story you're telling. And those things all work for Chekhov. Mm. But they're not for every writer. I was thinking too that, you know, in the, in the teaching game, uh, and in any kind of public speaking game, you do develop some shtick, what you should and shouldn't do. But when I teach at Syracuse, I always say there's a big set of parentheses around the semester. And basically put a footnote on it and say, says me, these are the excesses that I've learned to work with, given my personality and my flaws and so on. You're going to have to go out and make your own set of shtick and, and your own... Uh, how, you're going to learn how to work with your own excesses. So I think part of what we do in writing education is you have to go in and what else do you have to give them but your own weird version. And to some extent it will help some of them a little bit. So like this talk about revision and cutting. Some students are really helped by that and some are shut down by it. So I always try to give a healthy dose of disclaimer and then say, no, I'm going to hit it hard and I'm going to act like I, you're going to think I know what I'm talking about but keep a little bit of skepticism because your set of attributes are gonna to be totally different from, from mine. Yeah. Um, it, it struck me, George, as you were talking uh, just now, and um, also, Toby, as you're talking about Chekhov and language and kind of distortions of language, you both share an interest in distortion of language. Um, and, and in particular, language that would seem to be good, but is used for bad purposes. So I'm thinking, George, at, at the end of, um, extortion, when you have uh, 
uh, sort of a quote of Julian of Norwich, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all shall be well. And it's, it's a falsity. Um, and then, Toby, I was thinking about um, in, uh, in Pharaoh's army, you talk about how you knew Vietnamese uh, enough to be to sort of like a seven-year-old, right? But with uh, this kind of fierce military vocabulary um, added to it. And both of those are sort of good things that have these distortions to them that turn them into um, bad uses of language. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about that preoccupation that you both share. Uh, yeah, we... Uh, I, one of the essays that uh, really meant a lot to me when I came across it when I was younger was something an English teacher of, me, of mine had me read uh, of Orwell's, and it has to do with, it had to do with political language and the debasement of language through politics, and he, and uh, you know it's the same sort of thing that Hemingway uh, in a Farewell to Arms when he talks about essentially saying words like honor and glory and country have lost their meaning for me. Now what means something to me is the date when a friend of mine died or the river that he died in, the, the particulars. Uh, and uh, uh, and I, I, the longer I've lived, the warmer I've become toward that advice. It, it is, it's in the, we, we live in particulars. and. And I think that uh, people, you know, a certain kind of person is very good at manipulating abstractions and getting people to, uh, uh, you know, conjuring up some illusory, beautiful uh, past that we can return to. And uh, we've seen it happen again and again, not, not just in this country, but everywhere. And, and you can trace the poison to the language. I was thinking that the, in, a, in a sort of neoliberal materialist time like ours, where there are big forces working against particularities and, and dearnesses of the heart, the euphemism becomes a very, very fast-flowing stream. I, and I remember working at this corporation and getting the first taste of it. We, we, email was new. And I think we only emailed with our corporate office in Austin. We were a little branch office in Rochester. And they, we would get their kind of gossipy corporate emails, but we didn't know the people involved, so we didn't really need to read them. But one of them was sort of like this. It was like, um, uh, those of you in the Austin office who may have heard certain rumors should be assured that such rumors are not intended for you to hear. <laughs> you know, like, and those of you, you know, like that, and, those, and if you haven't heard it, please disregard this email since it's not relevant to you. But the, but the talk which you have made heard of a, a company becoming smaller and thus more efficient are at this time not merited. You know, and you thought, well, who, who are you? You know, uh, so you, when, you, when you're called upon to lie, we can do it. I mean, it's easy to lie and language is the golden ticket, you, you know. So I, I'm, I'm, it's fun. It's a funny thing to do also, you know, to see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm thinking about that, that word abstractions that, that you used, Toby. And George, we were talking a little bit earlier about how um, conceptualization and concepts can become these like barriers um, to particularity. And, um, and I mentioned, uh, you know, just sort of bringing together Buddhism language and Christian language here, which is part of what this conversation is about, um, Gregory of Nyssa, who is this fourth century bishop, and he says, concepts are idols. It's only wonder that brings us to understanding. And like I think about both of your work, it, uh, it brings us to wonder 
and um, particularity and not concepts, uh, which I just find so refreshing and instructive. Um, and I wondered, George, if you might read a little bit at the end of the new Mecca essay, which um, I have. I have it marked here. Because you talk specifically. I don't have it memorized. Yeah, right. But I do have it here. Um, but you talk specifically, this is George's essay on going to Dubai and uh, seeing the stately pleasure houses of is all that of that construction like the there. Yeah. There. Okay, so yeah. I, I went to Dubai, and the thing was, uh, they, I got paid pretty well by a magazine, and so in that anxiety, I had written the story before I went, basically, in my head, and it was going to be a story of the, you know, the big uh, exploitive masters of Dubai uh, running roughshod over the little guy, which is true, but also it, there were so many other things going on, and it was so beautiful. So this, uh, I'm on the, I think I'm on the plane flying home, and I say, just before I doze off, I counsel myself grandiosely, fuck concepts. Don't be afraid to be confused. Try to remain permanently confused. Anything is possible. Stay open forever. So open it hurts, and then open up some more until the day you die, world without end. Amen. Mm. But grandiosely. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 It's interesting hearing you read it aloud because it ends in a prayer. Uh, and you just read us a sermon, which was sort of one of the best sermons I've heard, I feel like. Uh, and it's, I mean, how close are sermons to short stories? This is a tricky line, right? Uh, to not turn a short story into a sermon, and yet clearly there's such an instructive element. Um, well, you know, we, we were talking about Chekhov and about the, the pieces that Toby read that night long ago, and there's one, a beautiful story called Gooseberries in it, and they're in that, uh, and I actually remember you reading this, there's a part where the, the, one of the characters says, to, he's talking to his two friends, and he says, uh, every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet with a hammer uh, to remind him by his constant tapping that not everyone is happy and that someday life will show him its claws, something like that. And it's a beautiful, you know, and, and this character is basically making a speech against the facile nature of happiness and how dangerous it is. It's a totally convincing speech. So a, a lesser writer leaves it at that. Well, earlier in the story, this same guy is shown taking a, a, a swim in this mill pond. And he's loving it so much that he's on his back and he's saying, oh, God, oh, God. And he loves it. And it's raining, it's raining, that's right. And his friends have to, come on, come on, get out of there, you know. So now we have two beats of complexity. Happiness is bad and facile. The happiest guy in the story is that guy in the pond. And at the very end of the story, he continues to kvetch about this terrible tyranny of happiness. And in the, he's sleeping in, in a room with a friend, and there's a nightstand between them. And the guy who's kvetching falls asleep, having spoken his piece. And his friend can't sleep, and the reason is the the preacher has left his dirty pipe in the middle and he can't sleep for the bad smell. So Chekhov manages to say, make a great case for happiness being facile, makes a great case for happiness being all there is in the world, and makes a third case that this guy who's against happiness is thoughtless of other people's happiness. You know? mm -hmm. So that's how the great story works. And your stories do this all the time, this, this uh, almost holographic running around of a certain virtue. And at the end, all you can really say is, wow, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that uh, memory of yours of, 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 of gooseberries with the guy in the closet waiting to hit you with a hammer yeah. in case you forget. Uh, it's a little like that wonderful line in Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find when 
the serial murderer who, murderer who calls himself the misfit is um, about to kill this grandmother, having killed the rest of her family already, and she actually looks in his eyes and feels some compassion for him, and he can't stand that, and, uh, and, and shoots her, as he was going to do anyway. Um, and uh, he turns to one of his confederates in crime and, and says, uh, um, she'd have been a good woman if, uh, if it had been someone there to shoot her every moment of her life. <laughs> and we'd all be pretty good people if there was somebody there to shoot. Uh, well, it's why paintings, you know, of saints always have a skull, the memento mori. I mean, you, that, that sermon that uh, that man preaches in, in your story has great truth in it. You know, and it, why and do we think we're exempt? Uh, no, you know, it's in front of all of us, and, and it should tell us something about, about uh, how we might spend our, our time here. If, in fact, we we're going to die. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, Toby, when you were talking about being shot, uh, it made me think of your story, Hunters in the Snow. And, um, George, this afternoon you said that story was very important to you, that kind of rupture moment um, opened something up for you. And I just wanted to ask you to talk more about that. Again, in this kind of like teacher-student um, you know, mentoring relationship and, and how the lineage of the story is passed along and the lineage of the craft and all of that. Yeah, one, one of the last talks I had with David Foster Wallace was about that story. And I, I thought he had written about it, but I haven't been able to find it. But he said that for writers of our generation, and particularly for him, that kicked open the door because up to that moment, there had been an opposition. There had been the realists and there had been the, the kind of postmodern crazies. And... David said, and I agree, that in that moment you see that uh, those are not two separate tracks. As long as the writer is dedicated to serving truth and emotion, the tracks cross. And now you told me one time, I've never forgotten this, you said, we were talking about this, and you said, about, you said, well, every great story is experimental. And that, so I think that one, you know, there's, David was saying that for him it, it almost relieved him of a burden. He thought the choice was be smart or be emotionally uh, intense and in that story he said no that obviously you are experimental when you need to be to be emotionally intense and that solves the riddle and then Dave's work comes out of that you know that, that so yeah it's a good one <laughs> um, I mean in addition to the experimental you know I've been struck by how much um, discipline keeps coming up for both of you in terms of the practice right the craft and then thinking, uh, again, tying this conversation back to faith, how spiritual practice is often about discipline, habit formation. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a bit, uh, each of you, about how spiritual practice and the, you know, the craft of writing, the practice of writing, and the discipline element for both of those, um, how they exist in conversation for you in your process and, uh, you know, the practice. Um, well, George's wife is not in the audience tonight, so he can lie. Um, <laughs> mine is, so I can't. Uh, I have somebody out there who knows all too well what my various disciplines are and are not. Uh, but uh, I, I, my advice to others is 
<laughs> is to write every day. Um, and that that's how the work gets done. I remember reading something that Nick Hornby, wonderful novelist, Fever Pitch, he wrote the screenplay for this beautiful movie, Brooklyn, out of Calm Toy Bean's uh, uh, novel, uh, and has written, written uh, several novels about a boy is another one of his. And he said, you know, if you just write a paragraph every day, just a paragraph, at the end of a year and a half or two years, you have a short novel. And, um, uh, you know, he obviously writes more than a paragraph a day, but, uh, and, and most of the writers I know do, because they're also going over it and over it. Problem is that write, writing, is, writing is hard, I think. It's hard. I found it hard. And it has, as George said this afternoon, it also affords moments of, of the most intense kind of life and, and of, uh, of a different kind of pleasure than anything else. Uh, but it's hard to attain those moments. You have to fasten yourself to the chair and, and accept conditions of solitude that, uh, you know, if, if a judge sentenced you to it, they would get overthrown. It would be cruel and unusual punishment, you know. You have to sit there for four hours today and take semicolons out and put them back in. Uh, but you have to do that. And, you know, after that difficult approach to the work, after a while, if you're lucky, you can enter it. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I don't. I, I. I. wish I had more to say about spiritual practice. I. Uh, I. For me, I guess the. My my spiritual practice is to try to, uh, to treat other people as I would wish to be treated, and to think of them as as real as myself, and that is for me, what, uh, literature did for me when I was young. That nothing ever else ever did quite and that it continues to do is I think that most of us without uh, any any uh, ill intention walk around in a in a kind of shell of self-absorption and self-concern and there's something about literature that wakes me up to the absolute adamant reality of other human beings. And once you apprehend that and refresh your apprehension of that, that is, I mean, that is, that is the basic thing we have to know. Uh, is, is first of all, it, it makes a demand on us, of course, but it also makes us realize we're not alone, you know? And uh, so, I mean, as, as I guess as a, if that is a spiritual practice, I suppose that's the one I'm aiming toward. So beautiful. Um, the only thing that strikes me to say is that I, I was um, writing before I got involved in meditation. And the, when I first started going to these retreats, I thought, oh, I actually have been doing a form of this. And I think it has to do with, um, I guess it's a form of faith in the mutability of the text. So. You, you come to the text with your notions, your concepts of what it is, and you have to have those, but then at the same time, you're willing to have those overthrown by the actual energy of the piece. Uh, so what's happening is over the years, you're developing a confidence in that space of possible overthrow. And what I've noticed is that seems to be a fairly analogous to any moment of life as well. 
you know, you come to a party or you come to a Trump rally or you come to whatever with a certain set of projections. Of course you do. How, how could you not? But then in the moment the energy starts coming back at you, being willing to, willing to overthrow those ideas is, is sort of a form of meditation. So that seems to me like that, the basic thing I've learned from writing is don't give up hope. If you have a, uh, an aversion to something you've written, that's 80% of the struggle to fix it. If you, you know, if something goes badly, you can say, well, what is it? And then you, you know, so, so in a certain sense, writing uh, even as obsessively and iteratively as I had has made me more hopeful about the ultimate workability of things if you have the patience to kind of hang in there. And also if it doesn't work, not the end of the world. You know, that, that kind of hopefulness, I think, is, yeah. Serena, if I may, uh, what was it that drew you to a life of studying literature and then wanting <laughs> And then wanting, there you go. <laughs> and then wanting to to I didn't share prepare any answers. I only prepared that. questions. That's not fair. Oh. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I found myself in books. I think in a way that uh, I didn't have words for at the time. Um, I, I actually remember the moment that I learned to read because I, I learned to read very late at age six. Uh, and, and I, I'll see now I do have an answer actually, <laughs> you ask. I remember being in class and um, the teacher was going around to ask children to read. I mean, some of you have had this experience before and it was getting closer and closer to me and I knew that I couldn't read and it felt terrifying. And thankfully it stopped before it got to me. Um, but then, then I learned how to read that night. You know, I went home and I was like, okay, I got, I got to figure this out. And so I, I realized the sort of power and the access to um, a whole world, you know, that, that I didn't have otherwise. So, yeah. That's, that's me. Uh, Juno Diaz taught for us at Syracuse for a while, and he said he thought that he could make a connection between people who end up being writers and critics and people who early on had a lesson that language was power. So for him and his family, he was the first English speaker, and he was sent to buy groceries and negotiate, and that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a beautiful conversation, but we need to wrap it up and get on to book signing, I believe. So uh, thank you so much for coming tonight, and thank you to Tobias and George. Many thanks to both George Saunders and Tobias Wolf. Toby once said about George, he's such a generous spirit, you'd be embarrassed to behave in a small way around him. We found that's true of both of them. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes Sarah Bass, John Brown, Sadie Berger, Donald Hedinga, Lou Klatt, Scott Jose, Jennifer Holberg, Bob Hudson, Annika Kaptein, Carolyn Meitskins, Deb Reinstra, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Visser, and James Wart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you're especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith in Writing.